0: Stage. I'm Jared. I'm joined by Parker Selbert of Open Fame. What's up, Parker? Hey, nice to be here, Jared. Nice to be here as well. We're both here. We're both having a good Friday. I hope I'm doing all right. Got a little bit of a cough, but hanging in there. And excited to talk to you today about your project because hey, we've been we've been using it. We've been uh, open source leeching off of it as you do uh, for a couple of years now. And listeners of our Ship It podcast probably heard the story of you listening to ship it finding out that we were using obin in some sort of incomplete fashion and then slipping into our prs as it were and uh fixing up uh, and extending our use of obin on our channel.com repo which was pretty cool for us i mean it's cool to have someone listen to the show be like hey i'm gonna get involved get involved and create like a real valuable contribution and it's just a beautiful thing. So again, we think i don't know if we thank you for it already, but I'll thank you gonna here on backstage for doing that, and really for building this thing, which we use for it ships our episodes, it runs our stats, it does comment notifications, it does all our background things. So thanks for it.
1: Yeah, well, you're welcome, and uh, you're welcome for some great fodder for for ship it in the was it kaizen?
0: Yeah, the kaizen episodes. Yeah, we always look. I mean, one of the things that we why we open source even back in the day was obviously because. We built our careers on open source, and so it felt weird to be closed source, you know? Even though we didn't really think anybody really would care so much about our website being open source, but...
1: No, it's people reference it all the time. They
0: do. It's actually been pretty cool. It's probably the most well-known open source Phoenix app that's just like a simple CRUD web app that runs a production website. I think it's been useful for people for that reason, because it is almost copy-pastable at times because it's just uh, the kind of websites that most people build, right? It's not much yeah. special going on there.
1: Yeah, there are a few other um, pretty notable, like bigger open-source Phoenix apps, like Plausible is another one, mm-hmm. Analytics people, and then, actually, I can't. that's the only one I can think of at the moment, but I know there are a few others. Yeah. And most of them tend to use Open, which is cool. Yep. And I figure, um, especially for the change log, like I know people are looking at this all the time. So whatever's there should be, at least somewhat idiomatic because people are looking into it as a resource for learning. And uh, it should be up to date and pretty much, you know, by the book how you'd want something to look.
0: Yeah, not the way that we were doing it, the way you would do it. Well,
1: not your fault. I think I think Alex <laughs> It was Alex's was fault. fault. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna blame Alex for all that.
0: That's what I try to do at all times. You know, how many lines of code can I get Alex to write so I have someone else to blame when things go wrong? Yeah. He did introduce it because we worked with Alex to build our comment delay feature. Really, it was kind of comment editing was the idea that he came in to do. You know, Twitter can't get it done, but we got it done much more quickly than Twitter could. Okay. Famously, they're working on it now. But you got that problem of, okay, if we're letting somebody edit their comment, and really the, our implementation is just for like typos and stuff, mm-hmm. not going back later and like addending like you do on Reddit. I don't really like the edits on Reddit. Like, You'll come back, look like at the post, and then, like, here's, like, three edits, and they decide to write a book because their their comment gets popular. I think that's not so cool. But this is just for, like, typos, and you always see it after you hit submit, you know? Oh, sure. And uh, what that required us to do then was basically delay our comment notifications because we don't want to get those edit those non-edited versions sent out, and then they want to change it right away. So before that, it would just send immediately. It would background, but it would just use elixir features to background it and send off the comments and then once we added the edit button it's like well we got to like delay the actual notification by five minutes or whatever Mm -hmm. we decided was the comment window and that's when alex was working on that feature and that's when plain old elixir slash erlang features just weren't cutting it and he's like hey can i use oban and i was like i had actually heard of it from is it uku i think it's uku at plausible yeah him and I were doing a jam session coding on a feature that I wanted for plausible or possible customers. Yep. And, uh, him and I pair programmed on a feature on a live stream a couple of years ago to, I can't remember what it is. I can't remember the feature. Some sort of real time thing. Oh no, I know what it was. It was a threat. It was a notification in the case that your website gets spiked like by hacker news or something. And we were building that and he was showing me how he was using open. I hadn't heard of it prior. And so I was like, that's cool. And he really spoke well of it. And then when Alex wanted to use it, I was like, well, if it's good enough for Plausible, it's good enough for us. Sure, go ahead. And Alex thinks it's a good idea. Why not? Go ahead and use it. And so he was the one to blame. But it definitely served that purpose very well. He even asked me at the time, do you want me to go and convert all your other backgroundy things? And I was just like, nah. (laughs) Parker will do it eventually.
1: (laughs) Eventually. Eventually came through. Yeah. I think one of the other things that I had removed there was quantum, which is still pretty popular and used in a lot of places to do cron, but it doesn't, I don't want to speak badly about things too much, but it it just, when you have multiple instances, it doesn't tend to hold up very well.
2: Yes.
0: And I had felt that. So I was using quantum for the main purpose of quantum was to run our publishing queue. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we log news, which our episodes also go through this exact same flow is we have this very simple queue that gets set up. You can schedule inside of the queue, but you can basically just push things to the front, you know, put them at the bottom. And the idea there is, you know, we log the news, but we don't log it throughout the day oftentimes. Like I'll hop in and just like queue up four or five things, a lot like a buffer. But I don't want them to go out immediately. I'd like it to kind of dole it out throughout the day. So it's more of like a thing that refreshes, you know, every hour or something like that. So that queue basically has some rules in it for publishing. And the way that we run it is with quantum. It just wakes up once a minute and decides if it's going to publish anything that minute. And then there's, you know, there's logic around how to spread it out, etc. And so that was quantum. So I definitely have felt that problem because when I would connect to our server to futz with stuff, as I, as I tend to do, I would open up IEX, you know, the shell, inside of the context and quantum would start again, and it would try to publish news. And so I'd have like the production news publishing thing going on, and then my shell also trying to. And so there were times there was a weird bug, which I never found, where every once in a while it would post one notification twice. It wouldn't actually publish twice, but it would notify twice, specifically to Slack. So we have like a Slack notifier for new episodes, and it would publish the news item, and it was send to Slack, New episode. And like once a quarter, it would double post that. And I always thought it was because Quantum had, somewhere had two instances. So like there's no yeah. singleton thing. Like there was two of them at some point somehow. And there's a race condition that I never checked. That's disappeared, by the way, with Oban. So I definitely felt that with Quantum, which is like a basically a, a Cron scheduling library. Cron style.
1: Cron scheduler, but it's not persistent. So the difference... So Oban uses Postgres as the source of truth. And right. therefore... It's pretty hard to have duplicates when you only you know when you have a centralized place where you're putting things with all the uniqueness constraints and checks. Right. And quantum has to coordinate through distributed Erlang to figure out who is leader, and it's therefore you know subject to uh, split brain kind of setups. Right. But signing into the IEX situation happens to people with with Omen as well.
2: Oh, it
0: does.
1: So there are particular well. Not necessarily that you'll get duplicates of something, but you don't, you don't really want your shell to start running jobs usually. Right. So you put some checks in place.
0: Yeah, so maybe I, did, I haven't noticed it since. I wonder if maybe the way Alex set it up, it doesn't do that, or I wonder if it just doesn't, maybe it's not chatty, maybe it's still doing things, but uh, I haven't noticed it since. I
1: think I think there's a, a check, actually, that when when it opens, it says, am I in an IEX shell? And if it is, then it just doesn't start running any queues. Smart. There you go. Yeah.
0: I like that. I had another train of thought that I just gapped on. So take me back to Oban creation time. It's been a while. I want to talk about what you're trying to do with it because it's interesting and it seems like very much following after Mike Perham's footsteps to a certain degree with the sidekick stuff, which he had much success with. I wonder how that's going, et cetera. But tell us about building Oban, maybe even like your Elixir journey, et cetera, in brief. Sure. How you got into it and why you built this thing.
1: So the, the Elixir journey, I think, I don't know if it's that different than other people who used to be in the Ruby community and kind of okay. wanted to push out a little bit. So you're one of us. Yes, yeah. yeah. But I started with Elixir back in 2013. So been okay. exploring it for a long time and then got into it and introduced it for like professional work probably six years ago. So it had been a while there. And the company that I had contracted at for a long time, which I'm an employee at now, which is uh, dScout, was a a Rails app. And we had ran into lots of different load problems, as people do, and uh, had pushed the boundaries of what Redis could do as a cache, and it wasn't working out. So I managed to convince the rest of the team and the people there that Elixir would be a good fit, and uh, that actually worked out really well. The problem that that sort of introduced is that we did a lot of background work through Sidekick in the Rails side of things, Uh and we wanted to shift work over to the new Elixir side of things. Uh, And so I started making a port of Sidekick called Kick, so just K-I-Q, and that went pretty well. We still have just a couple of things that run on that that haven't been moved over. But as part of that, we were using Sidekick Enterprise on the... Rails side, and there were features there that we just couldn't replicate or didn't have. And as part of the license agreement, you're not allowed to re-implement them. So that kind of left us in a place where we needed those features, but there was no tool that had those features. Mm. And so I, in free time, outside of work time, started a new project. So Redis, around Redis 5, introduced this notion of streams. So streams were kind of Kafka-esque And I don't mean that in like the way people usually say Kafka-esque of like the whole metamorphosis thing, but really like inspired by Kafka. Okay. And the idea was that you just had a stream of jobs or a stream of events, and then you could handle those events at any particular place and then augment them and kind of push them back through. And that's directly what led to Open. So it's kind of the combination of sidekick style cues and jobs and workers, but then having them stick around and actually be persistent. So a lot of the stuff that makes Open um, as powerful as it is for doing uniqueness and workflows and the things that people really want to use it for is because it's it's in Postgres mm-hmm. and it keeps the jobs around after they ran, uh, which means that like for a Chrome job, I can see, did I run this job an hour ago? Right. I don't have to have just, I don't rely on some side effect. Like
0: built-in observability.
1: Yes, totally built-in observability. And that's what led to the open source version. And of course, I don't know, people just keep asking for things. And the more that you get in a... <laughs>
2: that's how it works, man.
1: The more adoption you have of an open source project, the more kind of weight that's on you as a maintainer because you want to help people. You want to fix bugs. You want to add features. yeah. And you really, it's hard to make that sustainable. So we, when I say we, I mean uh, Shannon, my wife and partner, in our company, Soren, which we had ran for eleven years, okay, uh, we used to do consulting.
0: Now I get it. Soren two, Soren two, Soren two. Yeah, there are two of us because you and your wife are yes married, obviously, because that's what how she's your wife, but also business partners in this Soren business, which was a consulting thing you guys did. Yes, I'm tracking,
1: and we stopped with the consulting and then switched, kind of pivoted to where we were productizing open to support the open source side. And then yeah. also just hopefully make it into a sustainable business. Yeah. And so that's where the, the open web and pro stuff comes in later.
0: Cool. 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 So that reminds me of what I was thinking before that I lost. And this is the nice thing about backstage is we just let it fly, you know? Uh, so we'll just, we won't edit that out. We'll just, we'll just loop it back in and make it part of the conversation. So, we recently just switched to fly. In fact, we haven't talked about it on Ship It yet. We're gonna do Ship It episode fifty, because our Kaisens are every ten. And so I think Gerhard is on like forty seven right now. Anyways, we're recording soon, but we are now on fly. Wow. And managed Postgres as well. So we've made that switch. Kubernetes goodbye. I guess I'm breaking news here. Hopefully Gerhard doesn't mind me
1: scooping him. It's news to me. I'm I'm excited for this.
0: Yeah, it's cool, and and I'm excited as well because it feels a lot like Heroku felt, and I was just like a Heroku lover for years, and still am in many ways. I just, I just love that style of mm-hmm. platform, and Fly has that feel where it's like you know Fly logs, Fly shell, Fly SSH shell. Yeah, the SSH thing is new to me, but or Fly SSH console. Anyways, I'm still learning, but. One thing that's cool about Fly, and you know, if you listen to ship it, you know that on our Kubernetes setup, we had so many problems with Postgres inside of Kubernetes we ended up being like single instance Kubernetes people, which is like, you know, it should be clusters and stuff. But we were down to like one instance, one database instance, one application instance, one database instance, and then of course we had local storage, which was also holding us back. So we switched over now to S3, and we, we can now easily switch to Fly because there's no you know, local disk there. Anyways, I'll say all that to say this is that when we switched to Fly, Gerhard was like, hey, you want to like crank up the nodes? You know, because that's the advantage, right? You can just like scale it up. Yeah. And I said, I thought, what could go wrong here? And I was like, well, Oban's probably smart enough to handle that, right? Because everything's in Postgres. So it shouldn't be a problem to have like all these application instances running because you have that single point of truth. And so I was like, sure, man, crank it up. And uh, we cranked it up and everything's been running just fine. And I think that's the advantage of having the architecture that Open provides is you have everything in Postgres, and so you don't have to worry about duplication and yeah and those kind of problems right across your nodes.
1: Scaling, well there I guess there are different types of scaling right. There's there's parallelism and then there's just sheer volume. Right, and there've been improvements over the years for both because there are some companies that run. 25 30 nodes all running open jobs uh-huh. even at D-Scout, we routinely auto scale up to I think 12 to when we have surges of videos and things that we have to process uh-huh. and then there are also some companies that run 50 to 100 million jobs a day so there's a, a volume happening there right that amazingly Postgres holds up with pretty well but it's it's awesome that you're you're on fly we also so the open pro site is hosted on fly okay and all of our private packages are hosted on fly and we actually do it as a multi-region thing. So we have nodes in Australia and then one in Tokyo and in Europe Nice, so that it's globally distributed and it adds some extra complications to, uh, to how you have to architect the app. At the application level even? At the application level. How so? If your database is in, unless you're doing replicated databases,
0: which... That's what I was wondering is if you had a single Postgres instance and you're like routing
1: your rights or... Yes, pretty much, yeah. We have a single instance in Chicago, which, hey, when you live by Chicago, is very snappy. It's
0: nice, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But you can't do round-trip calls to Postgres from Sydney, Australia, right? or you're going to be in a world of hurt. So we, we actually just route any requests that have to touch the database to Chicago, which is a pretty minor part. So, say, fetching packages, we cache everything using an RPC call, at, at the edge node mm-hmm. and then it just all, it does the license check from there and then pulls stuff and caches it locally for packages that kind of thing
0: it would be cool if fly could provide that kind of a layer where you could set that up you know because i think like eighty twenty rule i think like 80 percent of us will have that kind of a setup eventually where it's like all these app instances in one database and You know, reads can go from anywhere, but like, or anything that needs to hit Mm -hmm. or especially write to the database should go through this specific route. And it seems like that wouldn't necessarily need to be an application level concern if there could be some sort of a mesh layer or routing layer at the fly's level or at the platform level. I don't know. How, How much of it is conditional on business logic and stuff?
1: They have this relay thing that you can do so that when calls come in, I think their demo is partially, they've kind of shown it in Rails, but there are also Elixir libraries specifically for it. Like, It knows if it's on a on the primary node, and if you're doing it right, and when it sees that you are, it switches that to an RPC call automatically, or it tries to bundle those. So I think it's pretty actively worked on by some of the guys over at Fly, like Mark Erickson and, and Chris McCord.
0: Cool, so it's pretty good and probably getting better. I think the Fly's platform so far feels novel, it feels like it's new in many ways in terms of user experience. It, yeah. You can tell there's a lot of rough corners and yet you can see a lot of potential there. So it's kind of fun to be in somewhat early still. I mean, it just takes a while to build out a lot of the creature comforts of a platform as a developer, as a user. And there's definitely areas where you're like, okay, this could use some work, but it's fun to, to be there early Oh yeah, and to be involved with some of the people who are working on it and and provide Feedback for those things has been fun. We're just getting started, but it's been cool.
1: It's impressive. It's impressive how much they've built and how much momentum and, and buzz they've managed to get. But I've experienced the, the rough corners. Like you mentioned Heroku before, and there are certain things that as a longtime Heroku user, you just kind of expect, like, yeah, I, I get automated backups on my Postgres database, right? Or I, right. I can just hook up a log drain, right? But no, they're not quite there yet for those things. Yep, yep
0: i think there's a lot of low hanging fruit there i think they know they're not there on lots of things so i expect like massive improvements in certain ways as it gets going and then eventually it's like the again maybe eighty-twenty rule or it's like the polish rule it's like at a certain point heroku has been polishing for so long that it's hard to get that level of fit and finish but uh, at this point they have they can make huge gains in, in probably short amount of time on those
1: kind of things well heroku is a funny, so Open has to work for pretty much anybody who can run an app. So if you have a Postgres instance and an Elixir app, you should be able to run Oban. Yeah. But there are very different categories of that. You can have a clustered app where you're using distributed Erlang to send messages between nodes, which is how you would want to do a lot of PubZubby kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Or you could be in a pretty vanilla situation where there's no PG bouncer kind of thing in front of Postgres, and then you can use Postgres for bumps up. But because Oban has to work in any of those situations and you can't necessarily determine whether they are clustered or whether they have PG Bouncer, um, there's a lot of work to do, like lowest common denominator kind of coordination between things.
0: Mm. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of effort there. So... How's the business side going? Are you getting there? I mean, Mike's sidekick fame kind of set the the standard of like, this can be done, mm-hmm. at, at least in the in the Rubyverse, you can get it done. I think uh, in Elixir land, I don't know. I know there's lots of successful businesses operating on Elixir in Phoenix. And so there's money there, there's success there, there's, lo- there's apparently load and, and scale there. Just talking a little bit about a few of your users. I wonder how much of it translates into pro and web.
1: Uh, yeah, we didn't know at first either. I mean, the Elixir community compared to the size of the Ruby community, quite a bit smaller. Yeah, and it's really hard to estimate the size. I mean, you can look at say stars on GitHub or right. package downloads and things like that, but it's really hard to tell how many companies out there are using something in production. Right, and um, I think it's it's actually gone surprisingly well and uh, awesome yeah we're very pleased with it it's not going away anytime soon it more than sustains the open source development side of things and uh, quit your job can't say that here (laughs) (laughs) Um, thinking about um, about it (laughs) yeah we're not there we're not there but it I think the Elixir community is healthier than I would have even guessed Mm. so I can say that much
0: I can definitely say that I've been pleasantly surprised by how many folks are using Elixir as well. I would say, like, growth-wise, it hasn't wowed me in terms of over the last five years, like, how that goes. There's definitely more momentum behind a few other languages at the moment. But I think the quality of Elixir folks is super high. Uh, Everybody I've met and spoken with and, and worked with in the community has been just stellar, stellar people. So definitely a solid community and I'm sure there's people out there tracking you know Red Monk does some work, but tracking businesses using, you know, which platforms and which languages. Now most companies reach a certain level of scale and success. They don't have just a single you know thing going on. There's usually yeah. polyglot things happening across these larger companies for sure. For sure. But I'm happy to hear that there's been, there's enough people using it and making money off of what they do in order to, Turn around and upgrade to the pro and the web deal. You want to talk about the differences, so sure, people have understanding like where it breaks down.
1: Uh, I wanted to say one thing real quickly is that sure. I, there are there are languages like Python and JavaScript that are of course just killing it. They're huge, huge communities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every once in a while, for a while, my wife and I would discuss and like why why didn't we build it for JavaScript or whatever it is. But then you look and that's a massive community with widely different experience levels and different, like the, I don't know, there's something that's safe and tame about Elixir, and yeah, just the tightness of the community, which actually has made it a little nicer. I mean, we have about 10 open issues at most ever, not a 100, not 200, so it's not this overwhelming swarm of, of problems.
0: Right. Well, I can speak to that a little bit from a podcaster's perspective because we've also, you know, invested in communities and we've been asked to create Elixir podcast uh, umpteen times. Um, I've always been very pleasantly surprised, maybe not surprised, but I just feel like there's lots of good Elixir podcasts. I think for a small community, Elixir has podcasters.
1: Overrepresented.
0: Yeah, there's good shows to listen to. Like we don't really have anything to add. So I've always just said, nah, we can't really. I had one idea for a show that I think would be a unique value to the Elixir community, but I never executed on it. But, you know, we're in the Go community. We're also in the JavaScript community. And I'll put air quotes around JavaScript community because it's so big and diverse that we've had a harder time curating and, and fostering what feels like community for JS Party mm-hmm. than we have for Go time. Because the Go community, which is large at this point, but there's a, there's a tight-knit factor with Gophers, mm-hmm. which I also see in Elixir, where it's just been easier to create a community or, or be part of the community. I feel like you are part of it. Yeah. Where JavaScript is like, you know, a person who writes backend node APIs all day and a person who's working, you know, solely in React or maybe they're building full stack websites and writing CSS and designing stuff, like they don't have all that much in common. So it's been a little bit harder to feel like, there's a community there because it's so big.
1: Yeah. That's a highly fragmented community and I can see, oh no, I'm diehard Vue. I don't want to hear anything about react. So I'm not going to listen to this episode. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, views well served for the podcast as well. That That's the other thing that's nice about JS because the community is so large that there's like sub tribes, you know, you can hang out with your little sub tribe. Yeah. We've always tried to pull everybody together and uh, th- kind of more, the more, the merrier, attitude and I think that we're succeeding there and I think JS Party is serving the web development community at large but it's just been harder to make it feel like it's almost like when there's less of us it matters more you know yeah. it's almost like band of brothers you know like we're the, we're the Elixir folk and uh, nobody else is so we're, we're tight knit anyways I can see the draw of larger Python again so diverse uh, in terms of uh, opportunities for customers though but happy to hear that you're having success. So break down Open and where you drew the lines for paid versus free and all
1: that jazz. Well, the, so the original plan was to only have Web. So Web is a Live application, which was mm-hmm. very early adopted Live View application. We went through all the growing pains associated with that, and that was pretty much always a thing. I mean, for three years, mm-hmm. but it felt a little bit limiting. We kept adding certain features to open source that were definitely enterprise side features. And then we get requests for things like workflows and batches and the kind of thing that seem obviously like nice additions, but you can't really bundle that with a web view, which is just a nice dashboard to control things. Right. And so where do you put it? You can either put it in open source and then sort of lose the ability to monetize that mm-hmm. or kind of carve it out. And so the reason that Open is on 2.0 is there was a split from 1.0 to 2.0 where some things were carved out, and then a whole lot of fixes and features and changes went in there, and we split out a couple of those things into the Pro packages. And Pro's been a pretty big focus since then, and has grown quite a bit. So Web is the UI, and Pro adds things that you could do with Open on your own, but it makes them a lot easier. So uh, doing batches with callbacks, doing workflows, which is like a directed graph where there's dependencies between jobs and they only execute at certain intervals and dynamic cron, so you can define, say, a a cron schedule per account or user, things like that. Mm -hmm. Things that just build on whatever the open source version is.
0: So how does Pro work with regards to the logistics? Is it... Is it just a license? Is it a separate package that you have to have like off to get at? Or how does it, how do you actually handle distribution and, and uh, protection of your pro deal?
1: So it's kind of both. So there's a license to... Well, we host our own Hex repository. So there's Hex PM, and people publish their Elixir packages up there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We have our own host, uh, which is just wrapped in our Elixir application, which actually sounds like a bigger deal than it is it's a very small amount of code and we publish packages that are identical to a hex pm package but we put it in s3 as a a secure location Uh and then when somebody signs up for a license they get a key Um, eventually they can have multiple keys and we can manually do that if people have a a large team and they want to sort of share them but Uh uh when you go to install like you add the repo as a known source, and you provide the license key. And so when you go and fetch uh, OpenWeb or OpenPro, it checks the license key. If you have access. It relays it back down. But it's distributed as just another package that you install along with everything else. Gotcha. Same thing for web. Um, it's totally standalone, so it doesn't have to hook into the asset pipeline. It doesn't require you to install JS libraries or styles or anything like that. It's all self-contained.
0: Okay, so web is running uh, alongside your own infrastructure. Yeah. It's like a web view of your Oven. Yes. It's not like a hosted service where your Oven is hosted elsewhere or sent anywhere. Or, you know, you're not hosting that.
1: We're not in that business. We don't want access to anybody's data.
0: That sounds nice. Yeah, keep it off. Don't go, don't go into the hosting. A lot of people go into the hosting side where it's like, okay, if you want to host it yourself, cool. But uh, if not, we'll host it for you. But I guess for a background job thing it doesn't really make as much sense to do that
1: yeah and especially the fact that it it integrates with your database it's one of the, the nice parts all right i want to do these things in a set of transactions and i also want to insert my jobs as part of that same transaction right and i think when you look at other tools that are built on redis or built on a standalone thing um like factory you don't have any of those guarantees because you can't put it in a transaction, you don't get a backup like a logical backup with your Postgres database. You can't replicate it to say staging to see what things were like in the past. So you get some benefits there too, just from the integration side.
0: Do you, have any, you ever get any Postgres pushback? Like, hey, Open looks sweet. We're using Elixir, but you know, we like Mongo. We're actually backed by fauna DB or you know, whatever. Has anybody ever like Postgres is my blocker?
2: No, oh nice,
1: no.
0: not once. That's awesome.
1: But I. <laughs> I will I will say that if you if you go and uh, just look at the download counts for Elixir packages and you look at uh, the Postgres uh, Postgrex versus like the Maria DB or the MySQL, mm-hmm. uh, it is like a hundred to one. I don't know it dwarfs it. But um, the only two requests or kind of comments we've gotten are one around Cockroach DB is like is this compatible with Cockroach DB and yeah. I think so? I don't know. They have a Postgres wire protocol.
2: Well, they claim
0: to have wire compatibility with Postgres, so... It could be, but we haven't tried it. I guess maybe the onus is on them to be to, to make, you know, sort of. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't be because you tried to, right? You haven't tried to do any Cockroach things. No. You're just saying, like, well, there's a, they allege to be wire compatible with Postgres, so it should work? I mean... Yeah, I, it should work.
2: Yeah.
1: But we haven't we haven't tested it. And then the other one is uh, like yeah, people asking about does it work with SQLite, and I can say the answer is definitively no. But we've shifted so that there's an and it's a called an engine, but it's like it's essentially the adapter. All of the database interaction stuff goes through that. Yeah, and it is conceivably possible to write a SQLite Open engine, and it should work.
0: So you're not using any Postgres specific features that might limit that.
1: Oh, we use a ton of Postgres-specific features, but they're all encapsulated either through the engine or plugins. And plugins do things like Cron as a plugin. Plugins, like you can think of queues as consuming jobs and plugins modify or insert jobs, aside from what people are just doing by themselves. Yeah. And so there, there are a lot of, like there are advisory locks and there's use of um, skip locked or uh, there are definitely Postgres-specific stuff in there. Mm-hmm. But not much pushback.
0: That's good. I mean, it makes sense. I think all defaults are uh, account for a lot of it. It's like, well, this is the default, so use it.
1: You get performance questions for sure. People will say, like, what's the load going to be from this on my on my database?
0: Sure.
1: And some people run like a separate, dedicated database just for jobs. That's when you got some scale right there.
0: You got, yeah, you got a lot of jobs going on for that to matter.
2: Yes, for sure.
0: So, web is thirty nine. Uh, Pro is sixty nine, Web plus Pro is ninety nine, and dollars per month. I should I should be more explicit there. What's the breakdown been? Do most people just go whole hog, or are there people that just want the web UI? I'm just curious because it's interesting to know. Like, is it worth having these distinctions?
1: Yeah, uh, the majority go for the bundle. I would say nine out of ten go for the bundle, and then the other one out of ten. I I think we probably have like two pro alone and everything else is either the bundle or just web. And so you, you do get people just using web. Mm.
0: Yeah. I can see where the web by itself might be attractive, but then once you're looking at the pro, you might as well just get them both. Right.
1: We used to do it where instead of selling the packages separately, we did sort of a, you tell us how large you are and we'll tell you what it costs. (laughs) But I mean, and it was just it was it was one or the other. It was either your solo or your business. Gotcha. But we don't Open isn't phone home, and we have no way to tell how many servers people are running. So it was supposed to be that for solo, and that you're running one server, and it's good for when you're getting started, right? Um, and and then business was you have two or more servers, um, and it was very clear that people's self-reporting didn't really match up with reality. Yeah, the, the, the reality. Yeah. And so we thought, well, we're, the real value isn't in people just self-reporting what the size is. Just there's value in what the products are. So yeah, better to split them up.
0: So do you have a you got a freedom number calculated out for that on that bundle? How many bundles it's going to take? You got a down on the wall? You know, like we're we're 75 bundles away from freedom.
1: Yeah, we've got a number.
0: <laughs> I love it. How how far away is the number? Uh, Percentage wise, are you 30 percent of the way there? Fifty? Eighty?
1: Let's see it kind of depends uh, the growth is just like anything yeah. growth is not very predictable. So it's not like, like, well, it's another week. That's really- right, right. Right.
0: That's why I asked for percentages, like uh, distance, yeah. like bundle based on bundle count or subscriber count, you know?
1: Yeah. We're 60% of the way there. Okay. I'd say
0: that's hopeful, man. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. It's going well, you're, you're getting me to spill secrets here. They're, wow. They'll get me in trouble.
0: Nobody at work is gonna listen to this.
1: It's true. I don't know if anybody at work is a ChangeLog Plus Plus subscriber. So
0: that's right. they will need they'll need to start working on that subscription. Working on our own freedom number on ChangeLog Plus Plus.
1: Which okay, I'm gonna flip it and ask how how does ChangeLog Plus Plus how's that working out compared to uh, doing the ads with the the regular published versions?
0: Not even close. No, no. It's like uh, it's like one percent.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: But. And that's just top of the head math. It's probably not exactly 1%. But I will say that podcast advertising is lucrative. So you have to, it's competing with a larger number, right? Mm -hmm. So like we do very well. We're successful. We're happy. We already have freedom. So we don't really need a freedom number. But yeah, uh, Changelog++ is awesome. And it's for our hardcore listeners. And we love to do it. We don't really push it very much. We're not uh, relying upon it and we don't expect it to ever overtake. I mean, maybe, I think if ChangeLog++ overtook our advertising income, it was because the advertising industry collapsed and not the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> Which could happen, you know? Like, podcasting could stop being lucrative. Major disparity. Yeah, there's a major disparity there. Obviously, I think in the case that we had a such situation like that, like, if, if our podcasts depended upon it, I think we'd have a lot more subscribers. And I think that the way that we throw Plus out there, it's like, we would love for you to subscribe. It's cool. We love to have extras for people and get rid of the ads and all that. We would love your support, but it's not going to make or break us. And I think if it was like, hey, by the way, we lost all of our advertisers because whatever, market crash, or I don't know, whatever happened... Uh, Spotify scooped everything up and, and aren't distributing the the money. It's like become YouTube's situation. Mm-hmm. I think we'd have a lot of our listeners at that point step up and support us. And so I think it would change the calculus. But for now, no, it's not going to overtake advertising revenue,
1: which is fine. I will admit, so I've listened to the changelog since, I don't know, when Chris Wandsroth was on there in 2000. Way back. Or whatever it was. Way, way back. back. And, uh, I don't do change plus, plus. And I have no good reason for it. Actually, I support several Elixir podcasts. Yeah. Donate a lot to open source.
0: This is quite a confessional. <laughs> What's up? What's wrong with you, man? No. Yeah, um Are you a Master Feed uh listener at least? If you no, do you, Oh man. You're killing me, Parker.
1: I've dabbled in the various ones. Yeah. Um so listen. I'll get the names wrong. I listened to the JavaScript one and I've listened to the go one yeah. and the uh, AI one. And I listened to Shipit. Yep. but don't do the master feed.
0: So backstage, the show that you're on right now is not just for plus plus it's on the master feed. So it's, it's hidden from the public insofar as it doesn't have its own feed, but you don't have to be plus plus to listen. You just have to be a master feed listener or obviously visit the website. Mm. So this will not be just to our plus plus people it'll be to slightly more people probably in order of magnitude more
1: i conflated uh plus plus and mastercape fair enough
0: you're not a you're not an insider here parker come on you're a long-time listener but not a long-time insider so backstage is a show i think this is episode 23 we would love to do it more often it's a show that we do that is not just for plus plus people but it's for people who have kind of like bought in and like are more of the super listeners. Like they subscribe to the master feed. So they get every single show we publish. And the reason we did it originally was to kind of be a carrot for the master feed. Cause obviously we would love everybody to be subscribed to all of our shows and just pick and choose the ones to listen to each week. And so we thought if we had some like unique content that's only on the master feed, maybe that will get more people to subscribe to it. And that's why we put it there. Plus Plus gets obviously ad free. Uh, They get higher bitrate MP3s. So if you're like an audiophile, you get slightly higher quality audio. Although all of our stuff sounds pretty good, I think. And then they also get extended episodes. So we don't really do bonus episodes for Plus Plus, which is probably what you thought this was. But we'll do like another 10 minutes that we cut for everybody else, throw it on at the end. Sometimes we have, we've been doing lately, and we haven't published very many of these. But for the changelog, Ab and I will actually come backstage for the half an hour leading up to the show. And talk about, sometimes we talk about the show we're going to have, sometimes we just BS, and then we record the actual, the changelog with the guest, and then we'll take that backstage and put it at the end for the Plus Plus people. So that's kind of what Plus Plus is, in terms of like, what you get.
1: I have to say, I've never once thought, man, the the quality of this changelog podcast is so low, I wish I had a higher quality recording.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. We want it to be awesome quality for everybody, but... Some of that was actually spurred on by Gerhard because he's such a quality fiend that he's like, hey, can you guys uh, you know, have flack or whatever? You know? Oh, I can,
1: I can see that. And I'm
0: just like, well, yeah. we have other concerns. Like, we don't want our, our MP3s to be too large you know, because some people have bandwidth constraints. Some people have pay-by-the-megabyte plans. Other people are listening on the website, and when you hit play, we want it to start playing right away. Yeah. And so I can't just crank up the bitrate for everybody but for plus-plus people, which is, you know, way less distribution, et cetera, and obviously these are people that can afford to support us financially, so they're not financially constrained in that way, then we'll crank up the bitrate for them. But yeah, I think, I think all of our stuff sounds good. I'm not much of an audiophile in terms of, at a certain point, I can't tell the difference when you just keep cranking up the audio quality.
1: Not much of an audiophile says the, the man with the, the microphone and the <laughs> screen and the... Uh... Over the ear headphones.
0: <laughs> I have an ear for audio, but I'm not like, uh, you know, certain people listen on a record player still. And they're like, oh, it, it sounds, the vinyl sounds better. Gerhard's more of that brand
1: of human than I am, is my point. Yeah, the thing with the record player, the thing that, that gets my wife and I for a record player is that you- Oh,
0: you're a record player person, okay.
1: No, just sometimes, just sometimes. But okay. you have the record and it's like, it's, it's this large and you've got- It's cool. Yeah. it's
0: Yeah, I get the physicality angle for sure.
1: And the liner notes and the art and the yeah. lyrics or whatever else are there.
0: I'm sold on that argument. It's the ones that say it sounds better than a CD. You know, CD quality is pretty much, mm-hmm. I think, uh, objectively, like mathematically the highest quality audio in terms of the original sound. Yeah. And people claim that vinyl is, I think they're deceived. But if you're claiming you like the physicality, or you, it does sound different. Like you can say, oh, it's warmer. I like that warm sound. I'm like, that's cool. Do it. Yeah, just don't tell me it's better
1: or higher quality. I think everybody should should just be scientific and AB test themselves at some point. I, I actually they did this years ago as part of like an MP three trading community before nobody did that anymore. Okay, and because people would argue about like should it be V zero or V two? Okay, and that kind of thing. And there is a huge size difference between them. So it's like, all right, well, I'll just get some good headphones on and then just switch between these until I can't tell the difference and right you just know for yourself whether your ears can even pick that up
0: well like for instance so the public version that we ship of all our shows is 128 kbps and the plus plus version is 192 mm-hmm. and for me even with like studio monitors on i can just barely tell the difference but gerhard's like oh this is much better you know or i would love it to be 256 you know and i'm like all right I just can't do it. So, I mean, obviously people's ears work differently and some are more highly tuned yeah. to changes than others, but so you're almost there on your Oban. You're 60% of the way there on Oban. Oban for life. What, what are you doing to, to get the, the final 40? Are you just working on the deal? Hoping, making it better, serving your current customers. Do you have like, does your wife get involved at like marketing things that you guys try to do or growth hacks? Mm-hmm. What are you trying to, how, how are you growing it?
1: No growth hacks. Uh, the the best thing. And this is not going to be a surprise to anybody. Is um, writing, <laughs> writing about it, talking about it. Mm-hmm. That does way more than shipping features, which I think anybody who's tried to start up or whatever it is would tell you. Like there's that Plausible chart that they show every once in a while about what was happening at Plausible when there was one engineer and he was coding. And then what happens when the partner came on and then there was marketing? Yep. And that's where it starts going up. So the the best thing really for us to do would be to write more and teach more. And that's actually two of the things that we're shifting to focus. So one is starting to do training. So at um, ElixirConf EU in June, we're doing a, a full-day training session. And as part of that, we're preparing a lot more written material and guides and that kind of thing. So that is the second part is just making it easier for people to learn. So yeah. writing guides, not always the most fun thing to do, but uh, really rewarding for people to actually learn how to do things and, and bring people in that way.
0: Yeah. It's those boring high ROI things. Like it's actually really good return, but it's just not. Yeah. Cranking out a new feature, you know, getting in the flow state and coding it up, which is what you probably want to be doing.
1: I was talking to Alex Kutmus yesterday about this. Well, not that, uh, but about the notion that planning, like doing technical planning or technical writing, really important and long-term reward. But as a, as a developer, as a programmer, you don't get that kind of dopamine thing at the end. Right. You don't get the red, green, oh, it worked. Look, I made that work kind of buzz from it.
0: No, you don't.
1: And I think that's what slows us down.
0: Yeah. And in fact, I think writing is one of the most painful of all endeavors because you know, it's like
1: uh, to think of a podcast empire to work on instead.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'd rather just talk to somebody it's so much easier. In fact, a lot of my half written blog posts, I just say them out loud on a podcast and that actually gives me the satisfaction I would have had from having to like sit down and write it out. I'm like, I'm never writing that blog post. Now I just said it on the podcast in you know, more or less with terms. So that's how it'll be transcribed. You're good. Well, we do do that. Actually, we turn back our transcripts sometimes and we pull them out and put them in the blog posts because, uh, why not? Right. Yeah. I've likened, uh, much to my wife's chagrin who she's, she's birthed six children. And, uh, I always tell her that writing is like giving birth, you know, and she's like, you have no idea
2: what you're <laughs> talking about. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like you get it, but, uh, I'm still going to use the analogy because that's how painful it is. For me, and I do enjoy, I mean, there is some satisfaction at the end, especially if people appreciate it. But the process of writing prose is, to me, pure pain. And the process of coding is like pure joy. And I don't know what the difference is. Yeah. Do you have any insight on why that might be, what's the difference?
1: I, I really think it's that little dopamine bit at the end. I mean, Because you'll publish something. It's like progress along the way? or Yeah. The last big release or set of releases we had, Uh, which I think was in February. Yeah, I know it was in February because we made the horrible mistake of publishing it on Super Bowl Sunday. Mm. We had missed, we used to do like release Friday. We would do the release and do the announcements and if there was a blog post to do that Mm -hmm. and uh, we were a little slow. So like, well, let's do it on Sunday. People aren't doing anything on Sunday anyway. That was wrong. That was a very bad idea. (laughs) It's... Launch to crickets. Uh, okay,
0: even Friday is not the best day to to launch anything. No,
1: Friday's terrible. Yeah, actually, from so Open has a Slack channel. It's just in the Elixir Slack, but there's sure the Open channel there, which has a pretty good number of people in there, and there are very obvious trends to the way that a week flows. Like people purchase things on Monday and Friday. Mm-hmm. Very few in between the week people have a lot of questions on Tuesday and Wednesday huh. about things that they're working on. Yeah. They're, that's, that's when people are getting stuff done and, uh, and almost nothing happens on the weekend.
0: Right. Yeah. The only argument for, we're talking about technical publishing, right? Like publishing developer things. Yeah. The only ar- the only pro weekend argument is, well, you have less, competition for mindshare on the weekend. So the, there's less people around on Twitter, on Hacker News, on Reddit, on Changelog News, et cetera. There's less people around, but the people who are around have less to look at. And so you're, you you might hang out in the uh, mindosphere, right, in, in people's minds a little bit longer on the weekend because there's just not much going on. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, the other argument against it is like, hey, no one's, no one's doing anything. So what, why are you publishing on a Friday or a Saturday for, you
1: know? Yeah. Well, that's kind of what our thinking was. Nobody they're not publishing on Friday or Sunday. Well Yeah. I feel like we learned a lesson on that
0: one. Yep. Skip Super Bowl Sunday next time you're you're publishing. Yeah. Now you could have uh you said, Well, it's Sunday, it's not Super Bowl Sunday, it's the Oscars. Nobody watches the Oscars. We'll publish on the Oscars. And <laughs> then Will Smith comes and slaps that idea right out right on out his face. Yeah. Which was the best marketing that the Oscars could have had in there, probably in the history. And Chris Rock drilled it, right? He said best moment in tv history or something like that
1: yeah and then he sold out all of his shows on his subsequent comedy tour yeah so i think it worked out in chris rock's favor entirely
0: yeah he came out looking pretty good through that whole deal i think okay parker what else anything else
1: uh, up to you i mean it's it's your show it's uh if you if you have anything you want to ask i'm, I'm here happy to help
0: well how well do you know our application at this point you probably just looked at it that one time and moved on
1: I've looked at it more than once. Okay, how well do I know the application? Not, not super well.
0: Yeah, not super well. About better or worse than our than our plus plus strategy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my questions would be more like, how could we use, how could we, yeah, how could we deploy Open more or uh, better? But you probably don't know like what we're all trying to accomplish. So that's a hard question. My other question would be like, what might we get out of Web or Pro? Because I love to support you, but I just don't even. I don't see much value add of for, for us maybe because we're just the casualist of users. So those are kind of the things I'd be curious about, but it might require some domain expertise in what we do mm-hmm. and what we're trying to do, which you might not have.
1: Yes. I, I don't know anything, obviously. I mean, I'm familiar at least with what the app does. I mean, I've submitted news yeah. before I've got an account, listen to podcasts. I get the weekly newsletter. So I'm familiar with all that, and I think a lot of that's already mm-hmm. using different parts of it, but I don't know that you'd have much benefit from Pro. There are some subtle things, like if you happen to restart during a long-running job, it will you use a Lifeline plugin to kind of rescue it. There are little things like that, but mm. compared to a company, so like Deescat, for example, where you have a, a large team of engineers, and we're running hundreds of thousands of jobs per day, it's really important to go into the dashboard and then, you know, tweak things, maybe scale a queue up or down, maybe pause something, search, find out where errors are, things like that. Mm-hmm. If you're not sending that volume of jobs or you are comfortable and everybody just has Postgres access, it's not quite as appealing. I hate to I hate to unsell the product, but you know, there, there are realities to it.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. Let me ask you a, a different question then, since you're in Elixir land. So we've worked with Lars Wieckmann, Lars Viekman, as I try to call him by his actual name.
1: Yes, Lars is the one who was asking about the SQLite version.
0: Yeah, of course. He's always trying to make it as simple as possible. We've worked with Alex Kutmos, uh, both busy people with lots going on. If we were looking for more help for Elixir dev to come and work with me or under, under me, so to speak, in terms of me directing... Where do you turn for Elixir devs that would be like freelance for hire or consultants? Are there places? Are there people you know? What do you think? Soarin' 2? Can I get half of Soarin' 2? <laughs> yeah,
1: we're, we're not in that business anymore, thankfully. I know you're out of it. I know you're out of it. Which is really, really nice. It, that's actually a harder thing to do than you would think. It's, it's hard to find it's hard to find good contractors for anything, it, um, especially in the Elixir community, partially because there's such a crunch on jobs. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's a lot more demand than there are people to fill it, which is a good place for all the contractors and freelancers to be in. But are there, yeah, you have to see, are there any other podcasts Elixir podcast hosts which you guys could contract with? I think, I think they're all employed.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Or product people at this point.
0: Yeah. All, it seems like all the great Elixir devs have great Elixir jobs.
1: I think so. Yeah. So we've actually just had this whole conversation about trying to find people. We at dscout use some contractors from Poland because they have a very vibrant Elixir scene in around Krakow, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. But they even they have only so many people that you can use. So. Where do you grow? Where do you find more people? Where do you find people in the U.S. time zone? Yeah. So I, I realize you've asked me a question, and then I've just said, yes, it's hard.
0: Now you're asking me the same question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's one way to handle a question is to ask it back. I don't know. That's why I asked. Yeah, it's tough. Also, like people you can afford. So, I mean, we're a small business, and we don't have, we can't, you know, we can't uh, employ at the same salaries as these larger you know, tech companies who are making buku bucks doesn't mean we don't want to it just means like we can't compete to, at a certain degree or we can compete we can hire at higher at those rates, but we just do way less work you know which is ultimately can be unsatisfying for us so it's uh, it's difficult from that angle as well because everybody's so well employed, which we love, but it makes it harder to employ them, which we don't love as much
1: yeah, we would love to hire just a little bit of contract work like, oh, we have, we want to make these changes to the platform. So not necessarily to like open or open pro or something itself, but to the hosting platform, just to, right. We want to be able like right now there's a newsletter so that we can give people email updates when there are going to be account changes, but nobody can opt into it. Like that's a very small feature, but where do you prioritize that when you have all these other things going on, but it's hard to find somebody to just plug into all that.
0: Mm. Well, there's a call for our listener. So if you are a changelog master feed junkie and you're listening to backstage because you subscribe to plus plus or master and you're an Elixir dev, uh, hit up, well, hit up me first, but then maybe Parker also. You know, we'll give him the leftovers. Uh, Talk to me. And if I don't think you're a good fit, maybe Parker can put you. I'm just messing around. Yeah, let us know. Or if you know somebody who knows somebody who's uh, available, we are definitely interested in speaking with Elixir devs about doing some work. And Parker is too. So let us know.
1: Uh, Somebody, somebody recommended to me recently, somebody uh, who has a lot of open source projects, I will say, said, uh, just watch for people that drop a big PR on you uh, and just kind of reach out to them, send them an email directly and say, right. I love what you did. Can I pay you to do some other work? Apparently that works out.
0: Well, that's what I'm doing right here, Parker. You dropped a great PR <laughs> on us. I'm trying to hire you, and you're 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 not you're not consulting anymore. So, uh, failed on one, but I'll I'll keep trying with other people, and we'll see what happens. Cool, man. We well, appreciate you coming on backstage, hanging out. Appreciate you building open and making it open source, so uh, we can use it, even if we don't have much. We could value uh, get value out of your Pro and Web accounts. I think the Web would be cool, just as a nice to have, so I can like check out my stuff. But it just works, so it's kind of like, do I need to look at it if it's just working? So far, so good without looking at it. But it's pretty cool that you're making a business out of it and uh, thriving to a certain extent, to the point where I hope you get that magic number in the not too distant future. And uh, if, you, if and when you do, definitely let us know. We'd love to celebrate with you.
1: Thank you, thanks for having me. And uh, hopefully that, that does happen sometime in the future, and I would love to celebrate with you.
0: All right. Cheers.